Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week I interview Melinda Hansom, founder of consulting firm Brightside, and who was formerly the head of sustainability at Bird back in 2018. We talk about the recent spate of micromobility slash e-bike fires in New York and the response there, as well as the wider conversation about equitable transport options from her work with the Equitable Commute Project. Like we've discussed many times on the show, we think that there is a real opportunity for micromobility to contribute to the conversation. I really love Melinda's take on the whole space. She has a wealth of industry knowledge and is in New York with legislators having the grunty conversations that will help lead the industry forward. I really hope that you enjoy this episode as much as I did. And here is Melinda. Let's go. And welcome back to Micro Mobility. I am very excited to have Melinda Hansen back on. Uh, how are you today, Melinda? I'm well. Glad to be here. Oh, hey, it's been a little while since we last chatted. It sounds like you've had additions in your family and uh, new moves and uh, new companies, everything. So it's very exciting. Trying to keep busy. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, um, hey, I wanted to, uh, yeah, for, for those who maybe don't know who you are, we've had you on the podcast in the past, but I, you know, uh, for folks who are maybe new to you and your work, could you just do a kind of a quick top line summary of, you know, what you've done and where you've been to date? Sure. So uh, my whole career has focused at the intersection of climate and transportation, starting at the you know 40,000 foot level, working on international climate policy, getting all the way down to literally the street level, painting bike lanes in um, Asia and Africa. Um, so I've, I've really covered the policy side of things, the design and planning side of things. And then in 2018, I became the head of sustainability at Bird at a time of really high and fast and exciting growth. Um, and after leaving Bird, I launched a consulting firm called Electric Avenue, which focused on micromobility companies primarily. Um, and then last fall, opened my own venture called Brightside, which is also a small consulting firm. Uh, we focus on providing public affairs, um, actionable research and strategy for sustainable urban mobility. So have a range of clients in the private sector and the public sector and nonprofit sector, essentially. Anyone who's looking to reduce car trips and get folks onto more sustainable, mostly lightweight electric vehicles, uh, we can most likely help you. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I, I consider you one of my go-tos for uh, things to chat about when we when we talk about micromobility and the intersection between climate and policy. So I, I think it's very exciting that you're able to provide that to the rest of the industry. Cool. Well, look, I, I really wanted to bring you on to talk about an issue that I think I've certainly been getting a lot of questions about from various people, both in the industry and people who are not in the industry, but look at the industry. And that's around uh, the risks around fires. And and specifically the catalyst for this and wanting to have this conversation was seeing the bans that we'd seen in New York come up around lightweight electric vehicles because of these fires that have been happening where people have, you know, uh, micromobility devices, they bring them inside, they're using them in ways that we've never designed buildings probably for and then we're seeing that they have fires and it's you know we're getting a lot of backlash around that and 
And I think it's, yeah, it's, it's one of these topics that we need to have good answers for as the industry. And uh, so I, I've seen the, some of the advocacy work that you've been doing with uh, David Zipper. So I wanted to bring you on to, to have that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, it's extremely important. And I think this is a conversation and um, a policy discussion that's going to need to happen in cities all across the globe. Um, it's just happening in New York City, I think, most urgently and most visibly, in part because we have a very large population of delivery workers who rely on electric bikes to get around and to do their work, make a living. Um, there's something like 70,000 working cyclists in New York City right now yeah, wow. um, using a wide range of devices, some of which are good quality, some of which are questionable quality. Um, and unfortunately, over the past couple of years, we've had about 200 fires in the city that are attributed to micromobility devices. That's also included six deaths. And so it's a pretty uh, terrifying reality that we're facing. Um, so over the past several months, there's been a number of different proposals coming from our city council and the mayor's office, everything from calling on a ban to e-bikes altogether um, to a number of proposals to try and manage the safety of the batteries and reduce fire risk. Yeah. So, so in your view, what is the, what are the things, is, is it bad batteries that are causing these fires? Is that really the kind of the, the nub of it um, in terms of an issue? Yeah. So um, from, you know, the, from what the fire department is reporting and from what, you know, battery engineers and experts um, are coming to, to agreement on, it appears that, that most people believe that the, the primary cause of the issue here is poor quality batteries. So batteries that are coming from places where there may not be much oversight, poor quality cells put into the batteries, and then they're brought into New York City. They're being ridden really hard. In some cases, some of the delivery workers are riding about a thousand miles per week, which is, which is a lot. And a lot of these batteries weren't designed for that. Um, the conditions that they work in are really intense. You know, New York City does not have the best, smoothest streets in the world. So there's a lot of potholes. We have intense weather. We have, you know, salt on the roads from snow. So we have salt getting into these batteries in some cases. So, you know, we have the poor quality batteries. They're being overly ridden. In some cases, they're being damaged. Um, and then the third piece of it is... Um, you know, sometimes batteries are being tampered with. So if your battery is losing its capacity, not holding a charge as well, some folks are trying to replace the cells themselves and may not have the expertise to do that. And that may be a cause of the fires as well. So those are really, you know, the three main things that people are thinking. It's the quality of the batteries, it's the use and overuse and damage of the batteries, and then it's the tampering by unskilled folks that are causing real problems and costing lives. I mean, my my mind harks back to the Samsung Note 7, which, you know, made, it was infamous because it was literally like the worst advertising ever. You know, when you, when you get the TAA or the TSA coming along and saying like, you can fly with any cell phone except this one cell phone. Right, right. <laughs> it's like the worst negative advertising you've ever seen, right? You don't want that to be you. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. And I think that's, you know, like obviously there's a risk with this 
as you say, New York is sort of the like ground zero for this, but that the other cities will look at this and say, for whatever reason, we don't want to uh, adopt this. Have you seen any other cities that have kind of put forward this or see this as an issue and are talking about it? Or is it really New York only at the moment? Uh, in the US, it appears to just be New York. I, I, I'm actually a little bit surprised by that. I have conversations with cities across the country um, and it does not really seem to be on their radar. And even in places, you know, like Denver, where they're um, doing that really successful e-bike pilot or uh, subsidy program, where they've distributed like 6,000 bikes to date, it's just not really on their radar. Um, and so I think that, you know, it, it does suggest that it's really the combination of the unique situation that we have in New York that's the cause of it. The other places that I've heard of battery fires being an issue uh, are in Chinese cities, so apparently there's a lot of cities and a lot of building owners who won't allow e-bikes or lithium ion batteries into the buildings. And because two-wheeled transportation and electric two-wheeled transportation is so popular there, there's a lot more facilities you know, of, of various uh, design qualities for outdoor charging. Um, so really, I think it's uh, most of the, the, the fire issues that I've heard about are in China or in New York. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I certainly have seen like I've seen uh, articles about this uh, for New York. I know I know that there are certain buildings that have even started doing this where they're just saying like we're going to ban you from having those inside of the buildings. Is there something also? I mean, I take it's also about the built environment as well that New York has that density that makes it hard to go and park out on the street because there just isn't or, or not even on the street, but just sort of like in areas that would be not inside a small constrained apartment on the 70th floor or something like this. So, you know, I hear you about those sort of three things that are contributing. Do you know why in particular the batteries being sold? Like, are there not standards for for batteries to be sold in New York? Yeah, no, um, it's kind of surprising that there are not. You know, back in 2018, e-bikes were technically illegal even in the city. So even just legalizing e-bikes to be a- allowed to be ridden in New York is a relatively new thing. And, you know, I think over the past few years, we've seen such a proliferation of electric micromobility. So there's e-bikes, of course, there's electric mopeds, there's electric kick scooters, and there's like dozens of things in between that I'm not even totally sure all the time how to categorize. So I think there's just been a challenge in trying to get our heads around the policy side of things and how you regulate these micromobility devices in a way that supports their use, um, but also keeps people safe. Um, So I think it's really just the the whole thing of having a new industry, having a lot of new players in the space and a wide variety of quality. So it, it wasn't really on people's radar until I would say about a year and a half or two years ago. But you know, to, to our city council's credit, I think that they've taken a very rational approach to this, recognizing all of the benefits that micromobility can offer to our city from congestion relief to fighting climate to uh, giving people better access to economic opportunity. And so while there was consideration of, an, of a full-out ban, um, a lot of our elected officials pushed back against that and have been very diligent in looking for an equitable solution. Um, and where they landed was actually last week, the city council just passed a new bill to require that all e-bikes sold within New York City 
our certified UL2849. Batteries for all electric micromobility devices have to be UL2271 or equivalent. Um, and so they're really starting to get their hands around it. Now, I think, I think that bill is just a starting point. There's a lot of uh, leakage in there, right? I mean, people can still order whatever devices they want off the internet. New York doesn't have the power to regulate on that. What do we do with the hundreds of thousands of, of devices that are in our city already? And finally, what do we do with these vehicles that aren't necessarily e-bikes, um, right? Because 2849 is the standard, that is the system standard. So the charger, the motor, and the battery. Um, that's sort of the gold standard. It covers the whole system for e-bikes. But what about for these electric mopeds and other types of devices that are coming in? So I think it's it's really just a starting point in, in what needs to be a much longer conversation and what is going to require um, federal action. This is fascinating. Um, yeah, yeah. Specifically, can you talk about that federal action? Like, do you think that it is likely that there will be? Is there the capacity within the government to be able to do something without that having to like does it require having to go to congress or is it something that you know could be done through executive action yeah um so the uh, late last year in late december the cpsc which is an acronym that stands for consumer protection something the cpsc, yes, CPSC. Yep. <laughs> released a letter to i think they sent it to 200 manufacturers or distributors of micromobility devices, um, acknowledging that this has been an issue across the U.S. and indicating that they do intend to regulate if things continue the way that they are and that they intended to regulate to the 2849 standard. And I was going to say, and that's specifically for e-bikes, but if, for example, right, like you've got one wheels and you've got unicycles and you've got everything else, and that's specifically for manufacturers in the U.S., but not necessarily for importers at this stage? Um, it would be for importers. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, okay. So right. if the if the federal government took action, essentially what it would do is um, seize, I mean, it could potentially take action to, to um, seize non-compliant vehicles at ports, at the borders, and fine anyone who's caught distributing them. Um, and so this was sort of a preliminary action that the CPSC took. Um, I know that New York City Council has been in close conversation with them and have kind of, you know, co-devised what the policy that was being proposed here is. And, you know, there was another fire in the Bronx just last week, and the congressman from that district recently, actually just, I, I think actually just last week, called for a federal bill to speed along that that action to, to regulate on the import of low quality devices. So I think, you know, it's kind of something that a lot of people have not been paying very close attention to. But I would say that given the severity of the issue, I mean, we're literally talking about people's lives here, um, that, that I think we'll see a lot of changes on the policy side of things in 2023. Yeah. And these standards, so UL... Uh, I'm going to stuff up the numbers. So <laughs> no the e-bike standard and the battery standard that are UL. Can you just explain the UL, the UL part and how that works? Yep. So uh, UL, I mean, to the best of my ability, yes. uh, uh, I am not a battery engineer. So <laughs> I'm a policy person. I'm an urban transportation expert. So yeah. these are, you know, these are things that I've, I've learned from trusted experts and from being a part of this, this policymaking process. 
Um, so Underwriters Laboratory is a standard setting organization. They set standards for a range of consumer appliances, um, and they have one of the best reputations in, in this space in terms of safety. So a lot of consumer products uh, are certified to UL. UL works with a range of experts and companies in the designing of new standards. So the um, 2849 standard uh, began being developed almost 10 years ago and has only been in place for the past three years. So it was co-designed with input from a number of people. It has you know, specifications about the performance, about, you know, the combination of different parts, etc. And then there's a couple of different levels. So there's, you know, certified to the UL standard, which uh, can be done by a number of different labs. And then there's certified by which, you know, UL can actually do the certification. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's still, um, not many companies that are certified and that do meet the 2849. So the biggest issue right now is what do we do with all of the inventory that's in New York City that isn't certified um, because this bill is set to take take effect within the next six months? And does UL and the other testing laboratories, do they have the capacity to get more bikes certified so as not to you know bankrupt some, some good players and innovative players in the space who have invested a lot in great designs um, and likely, you know, are buying batteries from reputable manufacturers, but maybe just like don't meet this new standard. So I think there's, there's still a lot, a lot of details to be worked out, but roughly that's how it all works. Mm. I mean, this strikes me as a pretty similar challenge to what it would have been like in the early days of the car when you first introduced like safety glass and then you introduced seat belts and all that sort of stuff like you can't just get rid of all of the cars that are on the road exactly you just say like we're going to phase this in we're going to grandfather everybody in until this point and you you assume there's some level of risk with that obviously it's not great but you know as long as that the new the new things that are coming in are obviously safer that and then you work with for example like the gig company uh gig companies who might be driving this and saying like hey you must have a ul certified bike by this date and we can check it or something like that, that these are the ways that you can kind of see a pathway to to that being able to be implemented. Yeah. Uh, thank you for the explanation on UL certified. So like UL, I think is one of these standards that like I know the more reputable uh, services use it. Like I know that Turn, for example, has been UL. Bosch, for example, has been UL certified for a long time. And actually it's interesting because people in the industry have said when I've talked to them about it, like that you, the UL, it kind of, it's a proxy for quality anyway. And it's a proxy for, when I talked to Turn, for example, who make the GSD, Josh was like, yeah, look, I just want to service, I want to sell bikes that I know in seven years time that I'm going to be able to still get parts for these things. And I know that Bosch is going to be able to provide that. So in some ways you can see it, that really would would align anyway, because you, you're you going to have people who, as you say, are using these vehicles, they want to use them for work, and you want them to be able to use them as proper vehicles that would have resale value and uh, you know other things to them. And yet... They are all really expensive. So I, I'm very curious on the equity side about how, what the cost difference is for vehicles that might just be what, like, because I know at the moment you can still buy pretty cheap e-bikes in New York. 
or, or anywhere in the US, you know, like how that part factors in, like, can you just talk through maybe how regulators are thinking about that too? Yeah, yeah, no, and that's a huge issue, right? Because I think everybody, it's not like someone's choosing to buy a crappy, unsafe vehicle, right? I think everybody buys what they can afford. And, you know, there, since it is a relatively new mode, it's not like people really can tell or your most people can't really tell the difference between one e-bike versus another. And so in the research that we've done and, you know, uh, in my capacity with the Equitable Commute Project, which I think we'll get into more detail on later, we've had a lot of interaction with um, Los Deliveristas Unidos, which is the union for delivery workers in New York City. Um, and in speaking with them, you know, the, the most popular bike that's used by delivery workers, there, there's a wide range, but the most popular one is called the Aero 10. Um, they had Aero 7, Aero 8. Um, so these are, are bikes that, from my understanding, are of, of somewhat unknown origin, uh, and they're sold at very tiny mom and pop retailers across the city for about $1,500. Um, and if you Google Aero 10 battery, you can find a battery that is marketed to fit for these bikes for around $300. So, you know, that means you buy a bike with a battery for $1,500 and you can buy an extra battery to cover all of your deliveries for $300. So under two grand for all. Now, when you look at the UL2849 standard uh, bikes, as you mentioned, the majority of those available today are Bosch systems. They're really nice bikes and they're expensive. Yeah. The entry level model uh, from what I have seen appears to be like the Gazelle. And then I think the the turn quick haul are also more on the affordable side. And those are you know somewhere between 2,500 and three grand each. And then you add on the cost of a spare battery, which is you know $700. So we're talking an additional $1,000 at least um, more than, than what the lower quality bikes are. And the Aero 10s are actually the preferred vehicle because they have worked really well for delivery workers here. Um, you know, we are seeing some bikes in the city that are close to that are under 1,000 that are being used for delivery work. So getting to UL certification in short for the bike itself, it's going to be over $2,500. And, you know, for a lot of folks who have strong credit history and can access it, there's Klarna and Affirm and other um, loans that are available to you. But if you're a lower income person who maybe doesn't have credit history or uh, is an immigrant to the U.S., you can't really access those that financing. So, you know, one of the things that we're advocating for is that for this, for any policy, like any, you know, stick based policy that's telling people that you cannot buy this anymore, you also need to have a carrot. And so if the city really wants this to work and really wants to address the fire issue, we think that there needs to be a trade-in program, like a cash for clunkers type of trade-in program that allows delivery workers in particular, since they are the, the most um, visible and dominant users in the space, to trade in their lower quality vehicles for higher quality ones at a, at a price that is subsidized. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, well, certainly James Gross, uh, co-founder of Micromobility Industries, penned a, a blog post at the time around the fire saying, uh, when there was sort of a, a lot of hoorah about it, saying, look, if you want to regulate this space, that's fine. Like, we want this. We invite it. We think it's really good. But, you know, with that should come some level of assistance because you need to recognize also the importance of this and that the, and that the, those solutions are more expensive. Like, there is a reason that cars now, like you can't get cars for, you know, less than 
less than you know twenty thirty thousand dollars is because you have there is so much safety equipment that is now chucked into them that it makes them very expensive you can't just kind of go out and build things so and that they have received a lot of subsidies as a result while they had to develop that and you know the parallels in the industry i think are fair i think there's we are building vehicles that will be used that are utility and will be used for work they should be able to receive some level of support especially when we're giving seven thousand or ten thousand dollars per electric vehicle for you know comparably far less climate impact than we would be able to achieve uh, through micromobility so exactly yeah exactly yeah and i mean yeah it's, it's like you know we have the federal subsidies for electric cars we have all of the r d support that our federal government has given to support the development of electric cars we have our tax dollars going to um, infrastructure for charging electric cars on our highways and in our cities, our cities giving uh, preferred spaces to electric cars. And there's literally been very, very little, I was going to say nothing, <laughs> um, but yeah. you know, some cities and, and some states are increasingly stepping up to give a little bit more toward electric micromobility. But you know, we need to invest in this. I think that we've seen it's had a larger impact to date in reducing carbon emissions than electric cars, buses, and trucks combined with very little um, support from the government. And so if we were just to give a little bit of support from the government, from the subsidy side of things to support access to quality vehicles and the infrastructure side of things, I think we would just see so many more people riding overnight. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. The other thing that uh, I can see is that there's, you know, there's obviously service providers like Zumo. Zumo is the one that I know of that's sort of big, but I know that there are other leasing providers. Has there been, I can hear you about the sale. Is there anything that's sort of in play around the idea of subscription services or other operators who might lease these vehicles and requiring them to be able to go UL certified? Because in some ways, right, that could be the other angle to this is that you just say, if you're operating these vehicles within the city, you can kind of pincer it with a couple of different other angles. So you could say, look, the leasing services have to have it because then you've got a fleet of a couple of thousand that get uh, shifted over. And you'd say to the gig workers or anybody who's doing delivery that this is a requirement and then you can uh, go after those companies. Is there any kind of thoughts about how that might look as well? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's a really good model for a lot of people, the, the leasing option. I mean, I think especially for people who are maybe new, new to biking and aren't sure whether or not they're going to use it or want to try and figure out which bike is best for them or, you know, who just want a more flexible, like lower maintenance option. I think leasing works really well. What I understand from Los Deliveristas Unidos is that there is the feeling that a lot of the bikes that are available for lease don't cut it for what they need, um, whether it be battery capacity or, you know, ride comfort or other features that they're finding um, in the Aero 10 and other bikes, there is the feeling that the least options available today just don't cut it for their needs. And so I think that that's something that could could obviously change in the next few years. And I do know that Zumo in particular is UL 2849 certified. Um, so it could be a really good option, but for reason, that's sort of the reason given for not as much uptake among delivery workers, but, you know, it, it certainly could change as new designs come out, um, you know, as these companies understand the specific needs of workers in New York City, there may just be some, some minor modifications that need to happen. But the other thing, of course, to consider is that a lot of the delivery workers are undocumented um, and somewhat skeptical of, of 
you know, subscription models like that may not be sure of how to pay for something like that. And so there's also some, you know, cultural and social barriers to systems like that among certain populations. Yeah, yeah, totally. Excellent. Well, look, I'd love to change tech just slightly because I think the project I know that you've also been working on is one called Equitable Commute. And I love this concept uh, and and I have long felt that there needs to be uh, a conversation about the opportunities that micromobility, well, what micromobility might bring to the equity conversation in transport. So can you tell me a little bit about what that is and uh, how that came to be? And Yeah, happy to. Um, so the Equitable Commute Project, the ECP, was launched in July of 2020. So um, if everybody, I know everybody wants to forget that time, it was uh, a <laughs> uh, peak pandemic. Many of us were barely leaving the house. We were scared that we were going to get COVID via, you know, UPS package delivered to our house. Um, and it was a really frightening time. And, you know, in a place like New York, a lot of the computer white collar workers were sitting comfortably at home. And meanwhile, frontline workers, you know, your nurses, your restaurant workers, your subway, government employees continued to have to commute in. And it felt really unfair, you know, especially because so little was known about the transmission at that point. And subways were pretty empty. And a lot of folks who could afford it were turning to bikes and to e-bikes, right? It was the, the famous bike boom that a lot of us urbanists were very excited about. But lower income folks were having a hard time accessing e-bikes. So we launched the Equitable Commute Project very specifically with the idea that something had to be done to help get high quality e-bikes into the hands of frontline workers. And the project has evolved over time. We now have three different components ECP Access, ECP Green Jobs, and ECP Accelerator. So ECP Access is all about trying to increase the financial access. So we have a new loan product that we've advanced with an organization called Spring Bank that makes e-bike loans available to people regardless of their credit history. Um, you know, it turns out that it's actually easier for someone with poor credit to get a car loan, a multi, multiple thousand dollar car loan, than it is to get a few hundred dollar loan for an e-bike. And so Spring Bank is a B Corp community development financial institute that's trying to bridge that gap and get people onto an e-bike while helping them build credit. So it's, it's a pretty amazing financial product. You know, we've also been trying to get support to administer a subsidy that has not come together quite yet, but we're continuing to advocate for that. So a subsidy to support people to buy e-bikes similar to what's being done in Denver and elsewhere um, at the purchase point, just to bring the cost down, um, you know, with the idea that everybody loves a sale. And through surveying, you find that about 70% of people say that they would be interested in purchasing an e-bike if given a subsidy. So it's obviously a very powerful lever. Um, the second component is ECP Green Jobs, pretty self-explanatory, but uh, in doing this work, we found that there's actually a really big issue with a lack of mechanics who know how to work on e-bikes. We have bicycle mechanics, but people who really have that shared combination of experience and understanding of dealing with lithium-ion batteries, um, there's a lack. And, you know, the micromobility industry, as this audience well knows, is slated to be a, you know, $300 billion industry in the coming years. Um, and New York City obviously has a big role to play there. And this is a, a growing green job area, but there's not a lot of programs to date that, that support it. So we're advocating for that from, you know, national labor programs, as well as um, grants and, you know, investment from companies who benefit from micromobility workers. 
And finally, the last piece is ECP access, which is where we're doing research and advocacy to try and get, you know, the subsidies, of course, in place, but also make sure that there's sensible policy um, in place. So the the battery issue is is has been taking up a lot of our time recently, just trying to find workable and equitable solutions, right? A ban on this amazing and promising technology is not going to be a workable solution. So we've been pretty heavily involved in advising and advocating for solutions that will still promote access while keeping people safe. Um, and that's really the, the focus of the ECP access is let's make sure that we get the right policy in place to support ridership from the battery side of things, but also really importantly from the uh, outreach education and from the infrastructure side of things. Because if we don't get more connected and protected bike lanes, um, we're not going to get a ton more butts on bikes and we really need to make that happen. Fantastic. That is a great set of initiatives and feels like you're nailing all of the things that I think are super, super important kind of one by one. Um, can we just talk quickly about that financing thing? Because I think your point around, you know, that, that folks can go out and get a multi-thousand dollar car loan, but they but they struggle to get financing for an e-bike. How much of that is just due to the fact that like e-bikes are considered more stealable, harder to like collateralize in a loan? And, and, and is there been, have you seen any work in that space that helps kind of fix that particular problem? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really great point. Right. And bike theft is, is a huge issue in New York and in cities all, all around the globe, I'm sure. So our partner Spring Bank requires insurance. There are new and emerging insurance products that will cover the cost of an e-bike in the case of theft or cover the cost of the loan. So obviously, you know, it, it protects, it, it allows Spring Bank to be able to offer the loan. Um, it does not do, it, it, depending obviously on what, what program or what insurance package you choose, um, you can get additional coverage. But just to say that there are increasingly insurance products that are specifically for bikes so they don't require you to add it on to your renters or homeowners. They're just specifically for your bike. So I think that's making a big difference. I think there's a lot more technologies to help keep track and recover your bike if they end up leaving. I think, you know, I've seen new products coming out. Also, people use a combination of the Apple tags and other things to keep track of their bikes, which I think will go a really long way. And then the last thing is, I think we'll see a lot more public infrastructure that provides safer places for people to park their bikes so that you reduce the risk of theft overall. In New York City, we have a company here called Uni, uh, and they have been hard at work trying to get public bike infrastructure in place for years and are now succeeding. They have a few pilots, you know, in, in really iconic parts of the city, like outside of Grand Central and, and elsewhere. And those are, you know, you can open it with an app, you can put your your bike into a hanger and lock it up inside and it keeps it much safer. Oh, these are like the Unipods? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I've seen these. The Unipods, so they sit in like, they take up a car park. How many bikes would they hold in something that's the size of a car park? I think those ones are about 10 bikes. Um, but they have some that are, you know, like on like um, uh, larger like parking lots or elsewhere that can hold dozens of bikes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very smart. I think these things need to exist. The other, just as a kind of really random, I, th I think a lot about how e-bikes are stolen and or how to protect them. There's, um, there's a couple of really cool uh, startups that I've seen coming through. So one is Lug and Carry, who are based in Australia, who do the sort of family-based bikes, 
one of my favorite companies. I talk about them all the time, but they do their whole solution is to have a car alarm, you know, like a beep, beep, uh, old car alarm style thing that you just secure to the bike combined. They don't even do GPS tracking actually, as it turns out, but you could layer. So you could go, uh, you know, a car alarm thing, multiple locks on the bike and then a GPS tracker. And that kind of gets you pretty close to, to, to what you're looking for. The other thing that I've seen is, is a couple of companies that are coming out with smart locks. So like city locks that are attached to existing council-based infrastructure and people can ride up to them and they're a Bluetooth lock. So the, they, they unlock, they're already there. It's very cheap to otherwise kind of retrofit existing infrastructure. And then you can you can see where they are on the app and then you ride up to them, use them, and then you're charged on a per use basis. And then some portion of that revenue goes back to the council. And, and those, you know, I think are all starting to get interesting. We'll, we'll see how that, uh, see how that plays out, um, in the long term. But, um, yeah, I do, I do think that. Yeah. Would love to see so much more of that. <laughs> oh, totally. Right. I do really think that in about five years time, we will not be talking about this in the same way that like, you know, I, the early days of, you know, iPhones being snatched on trains and then you kind of, Oh no. And now I've lost it. And I, you know, now, nowadays we have find my and has face ID and it's very hard to, yeah, it still happens, but it's just way less of an issue. And you've got cloud backup. Like, I think a lot of that stuff, the equivalent of that will come for micromobility. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. That's a great analogy, actually. Yeah. I think it's, it, it'll, I think the the technologies will get better. I think, like you said, the alarm. I mean, I think Van Moof is on to some cool things with their bike as well, which yeah. has like flashes of skull and crossbones and has all these crazy noises if you move it when it's locked. So yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I hope that it's it continues to be less and less of an issue all the way to the point where it's barely an issue in the next five years. Yeah, absolutely. These are like a lot of the um, things that you were talking about with the ECP uh, sound like they are focused on folks being able to get bikes themselves and then being able to use them. Um, I'm very curious because one of the big things, especially in New York, that I am aware of is that, so Lyft, for example, with the City Bike Project has discounted passes on the, uh, for, for e-bikes, like for standard bikes, but then also for e-bikes uh, on the shared system. And Laura, who's the, uh, Laura Fox, who, who runs City Bike, is very, you know, the, the data she sh- shared with me about the like level of use on that and the cost points that they're, they're able to hit on that have been incredibly compelling. Like they just see, you know, she's like, turns out construction workers love e-bikes, <laughs> you know, like that's who's using them in New York because it's the fastest way across the city when you need to get to work. Has there been anything in the shared, like as part of that shared, part of that conversation that you look at in terms of shared? Yeah, it's. I think it's, it's a good sort of thing to look at. I, I mean, just to even show the, excitement over e-bikes across the board. Um, you know, Laura, I think herself told me that the e-bikes and the city bike system see 10 times the rides of uh, of the analog bikes, even though they're only 20% of the total fleet. And so people go pretty far out of their way to access e-bikes. You know, I think it's just, it, it's a nice like entry sort of like the the gateway drug, which was a better term for that. But but for micromobility, a lot of people, their first experience on micromobility and especially electric has been a shared e-scooter or a shared e-bike. 
Um, and, you know, one of the questions that I'm asked pretty regularly is, and, and even in advocating for the ECP, right, which is pushing for personal ownership is why do we need personally owned bikes if there's a shared system? And I think that increasingly we see that the data is that it's just getting people to be in a place where they're more likely to give up their cars because, you know, a car is a solution that quote unquote works um, for every trip, right? Even though it's not the most efficient, even though it's expensive, it can get you from A to B reliably. You know, it's there, you know, you can take it. When it comes to getting rid of a car, and, and I think as you guys always put it, unbundling, yes. right? We, we need to make sure that we have enough options out there so that people can properly match the mode with the trip. Um, and so getting folks, you know, the personally owned and the shared, um, distributing it across the city is, is part of reducing car trips. I mean, just from my own anecdotal experience, I have two e-bikes, I have a van move and I have an electric Brompton and I have a city bike station pretty much right outside my house. And I probably use them about like 50, 50 personal to shared. Um, and it really just, wow. yeah. And it really just depends on what kind of trip I'm going to, you know, like sometimes I'm biking to a meeting or sometimes it's maybe going to rain later in the day and I don't want to bring my own bike or I'm going to be out too late or something. So I just think it's really all additive. And the more that we have, um, the better it is for getting people out of cars and onto two wheels. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. The, uh, have you seen any data in terms of being able to, when you, when you're going out and advocating for micromobility around cost, like the overall cost per kilometer, uh, or the cost per, per mile when you take into account everything and then how that compares with other transport modes? Like, is that a, is that a metric that you've been trying to, uh, that you, that you try and use? Yeah, it's definitely, you know, I, I think the people very much undervalue what they spend on their car in the U.S. Um, you know, right now, the average cost of car ownership in the U.S., all included, is about $1,000 a month. You can buy a really high quality e-bike for, you know, two and a half months of car payments, right? Like we were mentioning $2,500. And then the cost of annual maintenance after that purchase tends to be about $300 a year on average. And, you know, if you look at the cost of a transit pass, which is in, in New York is a bit over $1,000 for an annual pass, you know, you can really see how much money savings there is if you do a combination of transit for longer haul trips and e-bikes, micromobility for shorter trips or, um, you know, just kind of having your, your package of options can save you even just over the course of one year. If we just looked at one year here, having the, you know, the, the e-bike, all your maintenance and the transit pass is still just a fraction, about a third, I guess, of, uh, of the cost of owning a car for one year. And so I think we'll see more and more that people start to realize that that math um, for car ownership is just making less and less sense. And, you know, in a place like, like the U.S., sometimes people look at me like I'm pretty wacky if, if, if they think I'm advocating for everybody to totally sell their car. And, you know, I'm, I'm not doing that. But what I think we can achieve is get to a place where we have one car households um, and as many trips as possible on you know two or three wheels um, as opposed to two car households where virtually every trip is taken by car yeah yeah oh completely i mean he's preaching to the choir here but uh and and the audience as well i think but um the i do think that there's there's an element there of 
really nailing, being able to nail that story of being able to say like, what are the parts that we know are going to contribute to someone being able to really take, make that shift, right? Say like my primary vehicle is my e-bike. I use my car when I need to, but actually the one that I really use is the e-bike or my micromobility device. And what are the things that actually like materially change that conversation for them? And I always thought it was going to be the money conversation, but it turns out most people don't really care about that. They sort of like, no, it's the fun, it's the convenience, it's the other things. And it's like, oh, and it happens to save me one, you know, like I literally spend one tenth the amount of money on this particular thing as I as I did before. So it is just interesting that, that what what works in the messaging. Yeah, yeah, I think it's like convenience and and you know quickness of trip is one of the yes is really yeah the the biggest factor for many people, especially higher income folks. Totally. I, I do really want there to be a marketing campaign around, you know, like, oh, you think you're smug in a Tesla? Like, man, you should know about e-bikes. You know, like that the the biggest thing people can do for climate action is to go and uh, to, to get an e-bike and to ride it as, as, as sort of their primary mode of transport around a city. And the, that would be the, the thing. And, and I haven't really seen anybody do that marketing campaign, even though, you know, the math would stack up, I think, on, on that. But um, uh yeah, I think that's a maybe I maybe I'm wrong, uh, but I'd be actually I'd be curious. What do you think on that? Do you think that people would respond to that? Is that a, a valid messaging strategy, or or am I just trying to uh, assuage my uh, assuage myself with the Tesla ownership? <laughs> yeah, I, well, I think I think it could work. You know, I think increasingly people are getting more and more you know aware and holding themselves accountable more for carbon emissions. So I think that that's that's a really big piece. You know, I think one thing that that you and your audience are very well aware is, you know, sometimes I even think that the marketing of an e-bike is not a great term because people think bike and they think work and exertion, um, whereas an e-bike is actually a totally different experience. And it's something that is so much more accessible and people realize how fun it is right away. So I think even just like that sort of word of marketing is, is something we should consider. I don't know that we're going to get away from that. So, you know, the next thing is just getting people on to e-bikes in the first place to experience it. I think it ends up being really life-changing when people just get their first um, experience on an e-bike. But then even more so, you know, I think the the biggest thing and the research shows this over and over again is people are nervous to ride bikes, especially in the US where we have cars getting bigger and we have pretty poor quality infrastructure for any mode other than public transportation. So I think I would love to see uh, micromobility enthusiasts and e-bike companies and others investing more in the advocacy organizations that are doing really hard work across, you know, cities to advocate for better bike infrastructure. Because I think that the way that this industry is really going to reach its full potential is for us to get, you know, networks of connected and protected bike lanes. Because, you know, to your point before, it's like if we can make this convenient but also, you know, reliable and also feel rational, right? Like, because you're not worried about your safety, that's going to be the key to unlocking things. And, you know, from a marketing perspective, a lot of these companies have such amazing brands and they're so, so good at messaging. And I would love to see more of that, um, (laughs) that kind of skill be put toward, toward policy advocacy, because it is essential to the bottom line. And, um, I think that's what's gonna, what it's going to take for this industry to to really um, uh, unbundle the car. 
Totally, totally. Uh, well, I think that's a fair call on the industry and one that I, I try and ask of, uh, especially the owned micromobility manufacturers. And I've been really heartened because Mike Radenbar at Rad Power Bikes is just, you know, he's in his new role within the company. I think he's going out and he's like, my role is to now be an advocate. To, to really help lead this conversation. And I think he's a great spokesperson for, for the industry, at least in the, you know, in the US. And I can see it happening in, in Europe as well. Fantastic. Well, look, I am conscious of time and uh, I, uh, I just want to say it has been phenomenal to have you on. Uh, wonderful to catch up as always. And for folks who do want to track you down, how would they uh, find uh, you uh, and, and, and your company? Yeah, people can find me on LinkedIn, Melinda Hansen, H-A-N-S-O-N. Uh, you can also find me online at brightside.city. Um, and I am occasionally active on Twitter as well, but but more so on LinkedIn these days. And if you want to learn more about the Equitable Commute Project, that is www.equitablecommute.org. Fantastic. Excellent. All right. Well, hey, looking forward to having you on at some point again in the future when we have other uh, very uh, recent topics to discuss. But in the meantime, you take care of yourself. Thanks so much, Oliver.